Well, good morning, guys. It is so good to be with y'all today. Um, man, if uh, I look a little sleep up here, uh, I just finished our Cardia weekend. Um, so what that is, uh, is a weekend retreat for all of our high school and junior high students. Um, and I'm so excited. Like Zach said, we had a ton of kids in here last night hearing the gospel and being confronted by the power of Jesus. And what's amazing, so these little white bracelets that Zach talked about, we bought 3,500 of these things and handed them across all the campuses. So this weekend, we had about 3,000 plus people praying for our students. And that was just, that meant the world to us. So thank you so much for doing that. Um, and so if you have a Bible, we are going to be in Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Now, uh, like I said, my name is Thomas, and I work in our youth department, and uh, I love it. It's the greatest job in the world. When I was in high school myself, I was good at math and science, you know, and what happens in high school, we all know this, right? You can, you can kind of get by uh, without studying too much, right? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah. Some of you are like, no, it was still hard. That's okay, okay? Um, but I remember, like, okay, I can, I can, like, just study the night before or maybe, like, in the English class before, and I can get by. When I came to a and I studied mechanical engineering, and all of a sudden, that ability went out the window. No longer able to do that, right? I had to study and study and study and study to just get, a, like, 70 on a test. But there was this weird thing that began to happen, right? In high school, I was like, man, I'm shooting for 95, 100. Maybe I can go above that. That'd be amazing. But there were several tests during my time at, at A&M where I would come out and I'd get my grade back and they would be like, you got a 54. And then I would look to my friends and I would say, praise God, that was awesome. Because it's not about getting a good grade. It's about beating the other people in your class. Am I right? And if the average is a 45, a 53 sounds amazing, right? You're like, okay, cool. I'm just got to be better than the guy on my left and the girl on my right, and things will go well for me, right? That's engineering, if you want to know. Uh, it's ruthless sometimes. Yeah, we study together, and then it's cutthroat. Um, but, um, man, I, the reason I tell you that is because a lot of us adopt that mindset in life in general. Right? We kind of like approach our religion, we approach following Jesus, we approach our relationship with God with that same mindset. We, we develop our morality and our sense of good and evil and righteousness, not based on the standard that has been set, but based on, am I better than the guy and the girl next to me? Right? Because her life looks like a mess. Mine? Pretty great. I feel pretty good about myself right? That's why we watch reality TV shows. It's like, I just like to watch people's lives burn for an hour, and I can feel good about myself and eat ice cream while doing it. Like, this is great. We compare our lives to other people, and we say, man, I'm doing pretty good in comparison. And that mindset can infiltrate very easily. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the book of Romans, we're doing a semester-long series through this book, Brian talked about last week, Romans chapter 1, and his title of his sermon was, Why We Need Good News, which is aka, here's a lot of bad news to tell you. And in Romans, it was a pretty broad audience, and he talks about how they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They've worshipped the created instead of the creator. And he lays a pretty broad framework to say, hey, there's a lot of need. There's a lot of depravity in the world. There's a lot of horrible things that happen, some which are unspeakable. Now, if you can imagine, 
to the church that Paul is writing to. They are a pretty young church at this point. They're a mix of Gentiles and Jews together. A lot of, a lot of uh, theologians and historians, you know, don't think that uh, Paul or Peter were able to plant this church. They just helped nourish it. They actually think the first Christians um, in this church were the ones who were saved at Pentecost hearing Peter preach and then moved out, spread out. So if you can imagine planting a church based on a single sermon by Peter, as great as it is, there's going to be some rough edges around that congregation. And what began to happen is there was divisions within the congregation. If you can imagine, as Paul writes Romans chapter 1, and they're reading this letter to the church, the Gentiles can feel, okay, man, we can relate to a lot of this. We are, we are coming from an idolatrous background. But the Jews, in their hearts, many of them begin to think, yeah, you preach, Paul, right? They're sitting in the choir, and they're looking at the congregation, and they're like, yeah, can, yeah, they, they are sinners, Right? And then what Paul does in chapter 2 is he flips the pulpit around and he starts to talk to the Jews in particular, those who would consider themselves self-righteous. And he says, I have some bad news for you as well. And so that is what we're going to talk about today. It's a more, more bad news, by the way. So today is uh, why we need good news part two. So if you have a Bible, go to Romans chapter 2, starting in verse 1. And the text says this, therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is supposed to lead you to repentance? So I don't know if you've ever gotten a letter. You're like, oh, my mom's mailed me a letter. And you open it up and it starts off. Therefore, you don't have an excuse for what I'm about to tell you. You're like, oh no, right? Uh-oh, what have I done? Remember, Paul is calling out. And so my first point today, why do we need good news? Speaking to the self-righteous, you cannot be righteous enough. So if you can imagine the divide between the Gentiles and Jews, I mentioned that Paul and Peter were not the ones who planted the church in Rome, right? They, that this church would have been a pretty large church, but churches didn't look like this. There weren't large auditoriums with sound systems. They would meet in homes, all throughout the city. And so they have to appoint leaders and people would naturally step into leadership. And what could begin to happen is those with a Jewish background begin to think that they somehow had the inside track on their relationship with God compared to other people. And there was those in the congregation who said, yeah, 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 the gospel is for all of us, right? But some people might need it a little bit more than others. Yeah, I'm here to proclaim the gospel to people. The problem of sin is something outside the church or outside of myself. And what Paul says, he kicks that down, and he says, you know what? The bad news is the problem of sin is not something out there overseas. It's not something out there across the street or on the other side of the city. The problem of sin is right here in our hearts, in all of us. Look what he says in verse 1. He says this, you guys are actually guilty of the same sin. 
Look what he says. Um, he says, you condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same thing. He says, you don't meet the standard. Now, what is he talking about? Because were the Jews as immoral as the Gentiles? Well, in some cases, yes. Have you read the Old Testament? The Old Testament is not just like, yeah, like they're just floating around and being godly and there's like godly dust that they just sprinkle around. Yeah, they were a blessing. If you read the Old Testament, the Jews were a mess, right? They are just as immoral in some cases as the rest of the world. So in some cases, literally, they're judgmental, but their background, yeah, you are guilty of the same things. But there's something else that I think Paul is tapping into here. He says, man, there's this lie that we believe that sometimes when sin doesn't manifest itself fully in our lives, we're able to restrain it because of whatever reasons, our background, or just because of the families we come in. Man, sometimes we believe, man, that makes us better than other people. And Paul says, no, you're actually guilty of the same thing, even if sin doesn't manifest itself in the same way. Jesus tapped into this when he was uh, preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, the, the most famous sermon in history. Right? And he talks about, he, keep, he raises the bar, he talks about the law of God that was given. And he begins to point out, hey, God said, do not murder, for example. But I'm going to raise the bar and say anyone who is angry is guilty of the same sin. Right? And they're thinking, okay, cool, like, I, okay, I haven't murdered, that's what. And Jesus says, no, if you're angry in your heart, you are guilty of the same sin. The same root sin that gives birth to murder Man, it manifests itself earlier in hate and anger and detest for your brother and sister. And he says, that makes you guilty. But he raises the bar in other ways. He talks about adultery. He says, yeah, you haven't cheated on your spouse. But if you lust in your heart and you gaze upon someone else who you have not made a covenant relationship with, if you fantasize in your mind, if you allowed your mind to wander, you know what? You're guilty of the same sin they had a broad standard for divorce. It was actually a very hard society on women where men could divorce women very easily. And Jesus reinterprets that. And he says, actually, God does not love divorce. Right? He's not building that into the law because he's okay with that. And he creates a very narrow definition for divorce, saying, hey, it's pretty much only if there's marital unfaithfulness, which was revolutionary in that day. He says, don't make all these vows, swearing by the temple and all these things, swearing to God. He says, don't make any vows at all. He talks about revenge. Don't seek to gain revenge on your enemies, but turn the other cheek. Let yourself be taken advantage of. Or instead of hating your enemies, love your enemies. And so as you go through that, maybe, maybe I don't have hatred for my enemies or I haven't sabotaged my neighbor as revenge but man, I don't love my enemies. Man, I don't turn the other cheek. I, man, I reinterpret the law so that I get off easier. And Jesus says, you can't do that. The law condemns all of us. We are all guilty. But there's more. He says, your judgment of others actually condemns you. Right? They got into this posture of judgment. Look what the book of James says in James chapter 4. He says, do not speak against one another, brothers. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Now, many of us, we practice judgment on others, right? We, we think, 
man, it's part, like, God has placed me here to be his, like, righteous ambassador, and it is my duty, a gift from God, right, that to, to, to make sure other people are obeying his word, right? And we pronounce judgment in the case of the Roman church here, right? He, there, there is a posture of judgment of pronouncing, hey, you guys need to get your act together, right? That's what people were doing. They're like, you're the problem with the church that we're in. And Paul says, actually, as you pronounce judgment, you sin in two ways. One, you sin because judging others is actually a sin. When you look at James chapter four, right, he says, do not judge your brother and sister. Do not pronounce judgment on them. There's sin there when you elevate yourself over other people. But two, as you affirm the righteousness of God, you're guilty of the same thing, and so you are actually pronouncing judgment on yourself. You be very careful how you pronounce judgment. But some of you might be saying, wait, 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 wait. Should I just not care about sin then? I want to highlight something real quick. What's the difference between judgment and exhortation? Because the Bible talks a lot about we should exhort one another, we should encourage one another, build one another up. We're actually very called to be deeply involved in the spiritual lives of one another. We should care deeply if there is sin in our small groups or in our church or among the houses where we live or all these things. But we are not called to be the judges. We are called to exhort and to build up. And just to highlight, judgment, as Paul is talking about here, condemns. Exhortation has compassion. Judgment minimizes personal sin and says, you're the problem. Exhortation owns up to personal sin. Judgment says, God needs me for justice, right? I'm the one who carries the sword. Whereas exhortation says, God is the one who is just. Think of Romans chapter 12 when he says, man, be kind to your enemies because the scriptures say to the Lord, vengeance is mine. He will deal out vengeance in his own time. He is just. Those who judge lack confession. They don't confess their sins. They hide them. Those who exhort confess regularly. Judgment lacks humility. Exhortation is humble, whereas judgment looks to tear down. Exhortation looks to build up. It's an, in, an exhortation is an invitation to a better life, to, some, to stepping into freedom, whereas judgment is adding burdens onto people and weighing them down. So we are called to care about one another's sin, but not in judgment. And then Paul finishes this point, and he says, God's kindness does not mean we are righteous. Now, what do I mean by this? Go to verse four. Look what it says. Paul poses this hypothetical question. He says, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? What is he talking about? Well, if you have, you know, as we have lived our lives, not all of us face consequences immediately for our sin. For some of us, it just means we haven't been caught. And so we have not paid the price yet. For others, for whatever reason, God's common grace, we just don't feel the full brunt of consequences. And what Paul's trying to highlight there is to say, man, if that is you, that does not mean you are somehow more righteous or better when you look at someone else who has blown up their life and they're facing the full consequences of their sins. He says that is God's kindness towards you. It's his patience. One of God's most admirable qualities is how patient he is with us. I love what 2 Peter chapter 3 says. When, when the believers that Peter is trying to encourage in that letter, he, he, they're saying, where is Jesus? Why hasn't he come back yet? Where, where's the kingdom? And, and Peter writes to them, hey, a thousand years is like a single day to the Lord. He hasn't forgotten about you. 
The reason Jesus hasn't returned yet is because he wants to see people come into the kingdom of God. He's displaying patience and kindness, waiting, not, not hoping that anybody would perish. God is patient with us. And that doesn't mean we are righteous. And Paul says his patience is not supposed to lead us to apathy, but supposed to lead us to repentance. As we realize, wow, God, even now I have not faced the full consequences of sin, that should produce gratefulness in me and repentance to say, while it is still today, let me repent and move and make things right with God. We cannot be righteous enough. But Paul does not end here. Like I said, there's a lot of bad news. He establishes we are all unrighteous, both those out here and those in the choir, right? All of us are unrighteous. And he, not, he, he ratchets it up again. And he says, the bad news is we cannot survive judgment. Look at verse 5. He says, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Now, believe it or not, um, I'm, I, so I'm six foot six, but I'm pretty skinny. Like, I'm just not a lot of muscle mass. I'm just going to acknowledge that right now. I played football my freshman year of high school, um, and I was first string tight end B team, okay? So let's just establish that. Um, so uh, I didn't even make it through the full season because I was realizing I don't like to be tackled, um, it turns out. Uh, it's like, um, golf's more my speed, okay? Let's go do that. Uh, but I remember, um, I didn't really love tackling. I didn't love practicing. Like, there's just some people, like, I know I have buddies like this. They're like, they're just physical people. They just love, like, they're like, can we just wrestle? I'm like, we're eating. What are we doing? Why are you wrestling me? Uh, and they just love just physical contact. That was not me. I did not like practicing. I didn't like to, and, and, and there was these exercises we would do. They were special teams drills, right? This is before like concussions were like as big of a deal. I was in high school. I graduated high school in 2008. Uh, so this is like 2005. Um, and I remember being on a special teams drill. And one of these guys who is a physical dude, he was big. He's on the other side of the field. And I'm placed on special teams and I'm out there. I got my gear on. I'm just like waddling around. I'm like David with like all the armor on. I'm going out to fight Goliath, I feel like. Uh, except there's, God's not with me in this moment, it feels like. Um, and I'm just running and right, this guy just comes out of nowhere and just trucks me, like blocks me. It's the first time I like, you know, I, I like understood the phrase where it's like seeing stars. I was like, oh, my like vision is gone. Like, uh, okay, I'm back, you know, and I just kind of was like, man, I don't want to go back out there. And they're like, okay, we're going to run this again. We got to practice. And I'm like, this is not great. Um, and uh, hence going to golf. Um, and then I, I was also a band kid, so I did band, and it was more my speed. Um, so, uh, but I tell you that because, man, in the, what Paul is saying here, he says there is a day of judgment coming, whether you are ready for it or not. And it is going to come like this big dude on special teams that's going to truck you, whether you feel prepared for that 
or not. But the bad news is none of us can survive judgment. You can't practice your way out of this. Look what Paul says, verses 6 through 8. He says, everyone will be judged according to their deeds. Verse 6 in particular, he says, there's a day of wrath and revelation that's coming, and he will render to each person according to his deeds. I want you to just realize that. There is a day coming when everything will be revealed. Every thought, every action, every emotion, everything we allowed to enter into our minds and to dwell on, everything we have said from the day we were born until the day that Jesus returns or we pass. And it will be laid bare before God someday. And God will look at it and he will give us exactly what we deserve. Now, your reaction to that should not be, cool, super great with that. Like, if I was just able to play your internal monologue over the last 24 hours, like, how many friends would you lose, right? It's just like, man, the things that I thought or said or done, how many sarcastic comments did I make as soon as I hung up the phone? You're like, oh, yeah, okay. Like, it's like all of those things will be laid bare, and we will be judged accordingly. Not unfairly, not because God is a stickler, not be, because God cannot ignore sin and judgment is coming. And none of us can survive that. Paul will go on to say in Romans chapter 3, there is nobody righteous, no, not even one. And he says the only thing that comes out of us is sin and we just produce sin in our thoughts and our actions and we will be judged accordingly. Now, it's easy to read this and think, cool, it's like Paul trying to say, like, okay, I should like, try to be obedient, I guess, and be on the good side of judgment and all that. And we'll talk about the, the, the response that we should have, but I don't think that's what Paul's trying to say here. I don't think Paul's trying to say, yeah, yeah, okay, so like buckle up, put on your shoes and start doing some good stuff. Go volunteer at the big give, get some points there, that'll be good. He's not trying to argue that. What he's trying to drive us to is this point of, I am so terrified one day to be judged according to my deeds because I cannot stand. He's trying to reveal that God is just and will give everyone exactly what they deserve. Now, the Jews in the church would have begun to say, wait, 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 but we are Jews. Jews are special. And in a way, they are, right? They were God's people. They were chosen. God met Abraham and established. He says, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing to the entire world. And out of you will come someone who will redeem the entire world. And you see this whole plan unveiling, and there's this long lineage of, of hope and redemption. And so the Jews are saying, hey, hey, our family is special. And Paul counters in verses 9 through 11. He says, everyone will be judged in the same way, regardless of who you are, what your nationality is, or where you come from. You will not be judged based on who you married or your kid's performance or how you did in school or how your small group was super awesome or your friend who was super spiritual or your spouse. You will be judged personally. And Paul says, it doesn't matter that you're a Jew. And actually, Paul kind of makes a little joke here, I think, um, right? Because the Jews were like, hey, we're first, we're supreme, right? God has given us a special place. And he says, yeah, yeah. You'll be first in judgment as well. Look at this. There will be, verse 9, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil. Of the Jew first. There you go. You get to be first in line for that one. And then the Greeks will come along. And glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good for the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
It's this amazing statement that we cannot bear the judgment of God. It should make us tremble. It should begin to weigh us down. It should burden us. That's the right response. And if you feel that, there is hope. And I'll talk about that at the end here. But that's the spirit of God saying, hey, there is a sin problem in your life that must be dealt with. We will all be judged. I want to say this to clarify. There's two types of judgment at the end of time. All of humanity will face a judgment before God based on what we have done. For those who are Christians, right, our deeds will be exposed, but Jesus' perfect righteousness will be transplanted to us, will be given to us, and will be credited to our account. And we will be judged based on what Jesus did, not what we did which is perfection, and we will enter into eternal life. But those, right, who do not have the righteousness, who have to bear the weight of their own sin, they will go into eternal separation from God. The second type of judgment actually is for believers. The Bible talks about this a lot, where as believers, we will actually stand in judgment before God, and he will give us rewards or remove rewards based on what we did with the opportunities we were given. And so in the sense of this judgment, I think Paul's talking about the first kind of judgment, the judgment of all people to stand before God, whether you enter into eternal life with God or eternal separation from him. Are you ready for that day? Now, there is one final objection that some of the Jews might begin to bring up. And they would say, well, we have been given the law of God. And I want to say this, Paul's point here is your religion cannot save you. Look at verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts. They're conscious, bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating, accusing or else defending them. On that day, when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus." So there's this objection that enters into the conversation. Well, the Jews have the law. The Gentiles are just running around out there. They don't even know what's right from left, right? They're just kind of like living life and idolatry, and it's just, we have the law. That must give us some kind of inside track, some insider knowledge. And Paul says, well, the law is a gift from God. But he kind of in introduces the interesting idea, and, and I think his point is this. He says, you will be judged according to what has been revealed to you. And so he says, yeah, the Jews, you have been given the law of God, and you will be judged according to the law. Look at verse 12. For all who, uh, who have sinned without the law will also perish with the law, but all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. And so he's saying, the Jews, you have the law. You have the inside track, sure, but you are still unable to follow it. And so in some ways, your judgment is even more precise and devastating on your life. Because you have the very beautiful law of God that was given to you. 
But he says, that doesn't mean the Gentiles aren't, can't be held accountable. Well, they didn't have the law of God, right? How would they know good from evil? And Paul says their conscience, verse 14, their conscience reveals to them. Their, their conscience, there's something built into all people, regardless of nationality. There's a base level morality, according to Paul. And when we do the things in the law instinctively, we are a law unto ourselves, and we will be judged according to what has been revealed to us. All will be judged, but the law cannot save us. Now, when I was in college, there was this video that circulated around. Um, right? iPads were like starting to get big. Not everyone had an iPad, uh, but there was this video of a guy opening up an, uh, like a, uh, a new iPad, which was like a big deal. I was like, man, this is like fancy equipment um, and all this stuff. And the guy is like, you know, using it. He's searching up like a recipe and all this stuff. And you're like, wow, so cool. Like the future is here. And then he does something interesting. He takes the iPad, and after looking at the instructions, he sets it down on the table, and he grabs... Uh, his first ingredient, like a tomato, and he sets it on the iPad and uses that as a cutting board. He starts cutting on the iPad. And right, and you should be cringing a little bit, like, that's weird. Um, right, he's cutting his onions, and he's like getting all the, like, the raw meat and all this stuff on there. And, he, and then he's like, oh, like he puts it in the sink and washes it off under the water. And then at the end of the video, he sticks it into the dishwasher and then turns it on and the video ends. And you're like, that was devastating to me, right? As a college student who doesn't have that. Um, and, and it's this picture of, man, this beautiful thing. Like, yeah, that's one way to use it, but that is, uh, that is, a, that is not its intention. Right? An iPad is, maybe it could work for a cutting board once or twice. Maybe you could wash it. But uh, you're not going to be able to get much other use out of it once you make that choice. There's a beautiful way to use an iPad to help your life. That is a waste. That is a misuse of it. And I tell you that because I think when the, well, sometimes as Christians, we look at the law and we're like, bad. Like the law is bad. It's just like God made mistakes back then. And like he was just giving out the law and it was horrible. No, the God, the same God of the New Testament, he does not change. He's the author of the law and gave it. The law is good. The law is perfect. Even fact, when Jesus came, he didn't say, yeah, the law is bad. That was like a weird phase that God had, but he's like come out of it now and great. No, he says the law is perfect. You guys have misused the law. You were given the law, and it had a purpose, but you, you completely ripped it out of its context and started using it to weigh people down and burden them. The law was never meant to save you. It was supposed to point you to the one to come, Jesus. And I love what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, because he explains it. This is a long verse, but I want to read this, because he explains exactly why the law is given. He says, for as many of us as for as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Hopefully you're still tracking with me. Jump to verse 19. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, 
then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Do you see what Paul is trying to say? He's saying this law, what it's supposed to bring is the righteous standard of God on the world. It's supposed to reveal. It is not, it is not a doctor that can heal us. It's an x-ray that reveals the cracked bones in our bodies, the cracked bones in all of our morality. The law is supposed to reveal our need for Christ. And it's not meant to encourage us to say, okay, so start following it. Maybe you can like mend that together. No, that's a misuse of something that's beautiful. Instead, this beautiful thing that reveals our brokenness is supposed to lead us exactly to one place, to the foot of the cross. It's supposed to weigh us down in such a way not to leave us without hope, but to point us to the only one who can give us hope. And so Paul says the law does have a place to play in in our relationship with Jesus, but it does not build our relationship. It doesn't save us. It's supposed to point us to the foot of the cross and what Jesus has done. And so Paul, and his whole point here, is to say, man, religion, obedience, trying to do the right thing, trying to be a good person, trying to do the best to follow the law. We don't have the law as much of a burden on us immediately today, but we have that same mindset. Let me just try to be a good person. Let me do a good thing. Like, let me help this person cross the street. Like, that'll, that'll be good. Karma is more popular in the U.S. today than ever, maybe, right? It's just the idea of, like, let me say, balance this out. And that is not Christianity. We don't just try to outweigh our good to the bad. We don't just try to do some good to make up for some bad. All of us are meant to be driven to the foot of the cross where we say, God, I am not righteous, and I cannot survive your judgment, and there is no way out unless you step in. And this is the good news. Jesus is our hope. Right? When we talk about the gospel, when we talk about what Jesus has done, it's in the context of this bad news. It's in the context that we are sinners. Right? Sin is this problem inside of us. And when God sees that, he doesn't say good luck with that, but he sends himself into the story in a way that was unmatched by any other point in human history. Jesus became flesh. He existed before, but now took on flesh, dwelt among us, experienced every temptation we have, every sin and urge that we feel, comparison, lust, greed, all of that was confronted to Jesus, and yet he was without sin. He was able to fill what we were not able to do, and he was killed for it, because those who embraced the law, the religious leaders of the world, they killed him. And Satan thought he had won. But the cross was a turning point in human history because Jesus was not just dying on the cross as a martyr. He was, a, he was being an atonement for us and our sins. He was acting. At, he was stepping into our judgment on our behalf. And every single lash that Jesus received is supposed to be lashes that we receive. But he takes it in our place. And what the scriptures say is that Jesus was then killed. And he dies and he was buried. 
but that he has risen from the grave. And, it's, and he's risen by the power of God, the spirit of God. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And Paul will go on to say in other letters, and if you read the rest of Paul, that Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. It's this beautiful picture because you can picture the accusations coming on our account and Jesus looks and says, hey, that person's with me. That person, no, his sins are covered. Her sins are paid for in full. There's no accusation to bring. There's no charge you can bring against that person. But that credit does not automatically apply to every person. We are not all children of God automatically. We are estranged from God. It is through faith in the work of Jesus. It, as Brian likes to say, it is opening up our arms and saying, let me receive this free gift that has been given to me. And as we do that, our sins, our unrighteousness is cast from us, and Jesus, his righteousness stands in our place. That's a beautiful, beautiful story. That is what we believe as Christians. And so as a response, uh, there's just a couple things. Simple. We're going to sing a few songs, but as we do that, we're going to, I mean, in these songs, we're going to be proclaiming the goodness of God and what he has done for us. But some of us need to confess our self-righteousness. Now, I kind of presented it as two different groups, right? You have the Gentiles and the Jews, but the reality is some of our story is like the Gentiles. We've just run off and we've done, right, the most public sins. That's all of our stories in some capacity, but in other ways, we harbor the Jewish background and we say, man, I tried to hide my sin. I've judged others. I've tried to conceal my sin. Right now, let's confess our self-righteousness and admit our need. And let's trust in the work of Jesus, laying aside judgment of one another, laying aside up, building up ourselves. Let's lay it all at the foot in the work of Jesus, who is our hope. Let's pray. Father, praise be to the name of Jesus. You are too good to us. I just pray that you would reveal to us in this moment any areas of self-righteousness, any areas of self-sufficiency, and may we cast ourselves upon the grace of Jesus in this moment. Father, your scriptures say that godly guilt leads to repentance, it leads to hope, it leads to new life, whereas worldly guilt just leads to condemnation. And so, Father, you don't want condemnation in this moment, but you want people to repent of self-righteousness, to turn to you to receive life. And so for those who would not call themselves followers of Jesus, I pray that they would be burdened by their sin but would receive the gift of grace of Jesus that is offered to them. And for those who would call themselves believers, God, protect us from the sin of pride and self-sufficiency. May we lay that down at the foot of the cross and embrace the work of Jesus once again. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.